then, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy, and they are true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha, and I am the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. Good morning, and welcome to Stone Point Church. Uh, we are grateful to have you uh, here on the Wills Point campus, as well as those that are joining us in Edgewood and online. Uh, today we are wrapping, uh, or beginning to wrap up the series uh, between this week and next week of this uh, series that we've called Signs. Uh, over the last several months, we've been working through the book of Revelation. Uh, if you've been with us, we're coming to what we think is a climatic end. Uh, and uh, you're going to see in chapter 19, Jesus coming back on a white horse. And it's one of the things that we all think about and have probably heard, whether you've been in church or not. Uh, you have probably heard of something like that, and you even think of it. Uh, as a time referred to as Armageddon. Uh, today we're going to kind of wrap, uh, wrap up uh, kind of what that all looks like. And so uh, if you're a first-time guest with us, I hope to be able to catch you up in just a handful of minutes. Uh, but the bottom line is this is one of the most challenging books uh, in all, all, all of our Bible. And so uh, at the very end, the reason we have Revelation is because we believe, uh, the Scripture teaches, that the world as we see and know it will ultimately begin to fade away and it will be destroyed in a sense. And uh, in a seven-year period, at the very end of the earth, uh, it's a time referred to in our Bibles as Jacob's distress or a time of Jacob's trouble. And what that is, is a time of seven-year period in which God is doing two things. One, he is putting a rod on the back of the people of Israel, a nation that's rejected him and, uh, and his son Jesus, and he is, dry, he is drawing them back to him. And he wants them to believe in him, trust in his son, and ultimately be saved. The other part of it is he is, in a sense, judging a world that has hardened their hearts against him, who have 
uh, become their own gods and have worshipped uh, what we know as in the last seven years this person called Antichrist. They've bowed and they've bended to his system. Uh, in a day and age where there is darkness and calamity, they have trusted in him. And so the seven-year period is going to be a, uh, a period of tumultuous times. It's going to be a time where people are distressed because of all the things that are happening on the earth. There are going to be signs and wonders uh, from the heavens. There are going to be things that God does to judge the planet, to get them to bow and bend towards him. And so we know uh, that he's going to bring uh, some judgments that are called the seal judgments. He's going to bring some judgments called the trumpet judgments. And then the very last part of the seven years, he's going to bring what's called the bowl judgments. But in that seven-year period, there's a couple of other things that are happening. One is when you enter into the seven-year period, uh, there's going to be something that's significant that seems to happen. And we believe, uh, and I personally do, is that the church is going to be raptured. That means that people who have trusted in Jesus are going to be raptured out. Uh, and if you can imagine a planet right now that's already uh, pretty wicked with the church, people like you and I who believe in Christ, we're here. Can you imagine if you took the church, the hope of the world, out of our world, how dark and desolate a place it would be and how much hatred and how much uh, vile acts would be taking place. That's what's going to happen. And so in that seven-year period, there's going to be a person who comes out of a new Roman revived empire, as Daniel says, and he's going to take charge. He's going to come out of a 10-nation coalition coalition. He's going to say, hey, listen, everybody's gone and it's chaotic, but hey, I'm here and I've got a plan follow me. And he's even going to have such a good plan that the nation of Israel, who doesn't make peace treaties with anybody, is going to decide, you know what, I'll, we'll, we'll listen to what you have to say. And they, in a sense, follow him. And this man is referred to in our Bibles as Antichrist, one who sets himself up to be like God. And so for three and a half years of this time called Jacob's distress, there's not going to be a ton of distress. There are going to be some things happening on the earth that don't make sense, but He's going to have an answer, and he's going to get people to follow him. And when they follow him, this nation is going to follow him. But about the three-and-a-half-year point, because of uh, probably because of this, this guy, Antichrist, and the, the coalition he made with Israel, all the kings of the earth, the kings from north and the south and the east, are going to come against this guy named Antichrist, and they are going to begin to try to wage war against him. And uh, that's going to begin the, what I would say is a campaign called Armageddon. We think Armageddon is just this one war at the very end. I think it's really a series of events that transpires over about a three to three and a half year period. And so Armageddon's taking place. Israel looks and they go, wow, wait, we, we realize what happened. Jesus swoops in Revelation 12 and he saves them and he hides them for about three and a half years where he protects them and he gives them salvation and they long to see him as king. Meanwhile, the earth is just going uh, to the wayside for three and a half years Antichrist has done two things. One, he said, hey, no longer can you think the way you want to think. If you don't bow down to me and worship me, then you have no place here and he'll kill you and he's going to destroy you. And so in order for you to eat, in order for you to buy, sell, or trade, you have to take the mark of the beast. You have to bow down to him. You have to worship him. And if you don't, he's either going to kill you or destroy you or he'll have no place for you. And so you're either going to die and you're going to be apart from God forever or per perhaps maybe you'll believe and you'll trust in Jesus because all the events that you see and you still may lose your life, but there will be a place for you in the next life. And so that's the tribulation. It's pretty crazy, right? Well, here's the crazier thing. At the end of this tribulation, there's going to be more events that transpire. And here's what they are. Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, uh, he's going to take those in the final world rebellion, Antichrist, the false prophet, 
Satan, all of them, uh, and he's going to do away with them. He's also going to judge all the nation of the earth that's left from all this, all the wars and all the distress that's happening on the earth, and he's going to judge them too. And then he's going to set up a kingdom, and it's called the Millennial Kingdom. And Jesus is really going to reign here, literally, on the earth for a thousand years. He's going to sit on his throne in Jerusalem, the very throne that Antichrist has established for himself, that Jesus referred to in Matthew 24 as the abomination of desolation. Antichrist made a mockery of a new temple that's built during, during the seven-year tribulation, but Jesus will come and he'll redeem it, and ultimately he'll set himself up. And Scripture tells us that those who trusted in Jesus in this life will rule and reign with him. And they'll rule and reign with him for a thousand years. And you're like, do what? Yeah, let's dive in. Maybe I can explain it a little better as we go. But we're glad you're here. Uh, and if you're a first-time guest, we hope you'll come back. So... Revelation 19. Um, After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. What this is referring to in verses 1 and 2 is simply the idea of Babylon. The idea of Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. 17 uh, was the idea of the religious system. And and that's what Antichrist is going to do away with the religious system. He's going to say, no longer can you worship the way that you formerly worshipped. If you're a Buddhist, no longer can you worship Buddha. If you are uh, into New Age and mysticism, no longer can you do that. If you're into philosophy and you want to follow guys like Plato, or uh, if you want to follow Confucius, no longer can you do that. If you are... Any of these other things, no longer can you do that. I'm the only one that you would worship. And Antichrist sets himself up and he goes, if you don't bow to me, then I'm going to destroy you. And ultimately he does away with all world religion. And that's that's one of the things that happens. And so God judges world religion through this guy Antichrist. And then after world religion is gone, ultimately he's going to come in and babble on the city uh, where there is buying and selling and trading is going to also be abolished, and God's going to do away with it. Verse 3 says, Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Speaking about the idea of Babylon. It's, it's now been burned, and it's merely a heap of ashes, and all that goes up is the smoke of the ruins of this, this world system of uh, spiritual, economic, and political corruption is all just a a heaping pile of rubble and mass and it's been burned and all that goes up is smoke. And as the smoke goes up, it's as if there is rejoicing in heaven. And and heaven is rejoicing. Why? Because God has been vindicated. For the first time in history, people recognize who God is, who His Son is. And it's, it's the idea of Philippians 2, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, is beginning to play out before the heavens. And heaven sees that Jesus has been vindicated. The The very one who was crucified, though he was innocent, now he's being, in a sense, proclaimed as holy and perfect and pure and all of heaven is rejoicing. Why? Because corruption on the earth is gone. Israel, during the seven-year time of distress, finally saw who Jesus was and they're beginning to worship him. And now the heavens even render the glory of God. Why? Because there have been many people who have been killed throughout all the ages. In the Old Testament, uh, in the New Testament, in the centuries that have spanned from the Old and New 
today and ultimately even the seven-year tribulation that have been martyred for the sake of Jesus and they have all wanted what? Their blood to be vindicated, to be avenged. And it's happening before their eyes. And so what are they doing? They're celebrating. And it's a reminder of Revelation chapter 7. You had, um, you had saints that in Revelation chapter 7 have had their lives martyred and they proclaimed in the heavens, oh God, when will you vindicate our name? When will you avenge our blood? And they're told to sit and wait. Well, this moment has now come to fruition. God is vindicating his name and the names of all those that served and loved him, but yet were killed for his purposes. Verse 4, it says, And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and they worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And so the idea is they celebrate in the heavens because the harlotry, the idea of a world religious system that doesn't honor Jesus is gone. And it's all world religions, all of it's gone. All economic peril is gone. The world system is is now literally being dissolved in front of their eyes. And they praise the Lord. Verse 6 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt Him and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. The idea is this, is that at the end of the tribulation, when when God is preparing to send Jesus coming back, riding on the white horse, he's also preparing all of those who would love him and serve him. And it's the, it's the idea of a marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus said multiple times, and it's uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the gospel writers noted it to some way. Luke chapter 22, Luke says that as, as the disciples are sitting in the upper room, as they're preparing for Jesus to go to the cross, Jesus said something, and it's called the, what we refer to as the Lord's Supper, but he says, he, he says hey, here, here's the vine. Uh, he says, here's the cup. It's a reminder of my blood, which is given for you. Drink of it. Uh, here's the bread. It's a reminder of the broken body. Take and eat, all of you. And then Jesus says something interesting in the same passage. He goes, this will be the last time that you drink of this cup or you eat of this bread until I see you again. The idea is until the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so that means right now in the heavens, there's no eating and there's no dining and there's no celebrating in heaven over a meal. What you do have are people in heaven right now. And you know what they're doing? They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And that's what they're doing. They're not fishing by the pond. They're not walking streets of gold. What they are is they are absent of the body. They're present with the Lord and they're waiting for a couple of things. They're waiting for Jesus to return to vindicate his purposes. And until then, they worship God on his throne in the heavenlies. And they long for a couple of places. They long for Jesus set on the throne for a thousand years. And after a thousand years, they long for a new heaven and a new earth, which we'll talk about and finalize next week. You should come back. It's going to be awesome. But what you need to also know is, is that until then, what he's preparing us for is this marriage of the Lamb, a time where Jesus dines and dwells with those who love him and serve him. And there is some debate about who will be there, but the bottom line is the bride who's made, himself, who's made herself ready. Um, I knocked off my mic, man. Um, so the question is, who is going to be there? Well, uh, here's what a Jewish wedding was. Let, let me help you understand this. A Jewish wedding 
was a, was a family who would search out for another family and they would, in a sense, arrange a meeting between their family and another family. And oftentimes a family was looking for qualities in which you would want your son to marry this family's daughter. Now, sometimes uh, that prearranged selection could happen between, before a child was ever born. It, it may happen uh, long before you might even see two children. And the reason why is because they were looking for certain qualities, certain aspects. It kind of reminds us a little bit about what God has done. You realize that God has chosen us before the creation of the world. Your name, those of the believers, are written in the Lamb's Book of Life before their days ever came to be. It's the same idea in a Jewish wedding. What a Jewish family would do is they would look for qualities of another family, and they say, you know what, if we have children, we think that this would be a good relationship. And then they would enter into an agreement. Now, let's just say that this family has a little Jewish boy, and this family right over here has a little Jewish girl. They like the qualities, and so this family with the Jewish boy would approach this other family, and they would say, we would like to arrange our son to marry your daughter. We think it would be a great partnership. Would you accept? And there's an offer that's made. And when this family accepts it, they enter in a time called a betrothal. That's what Mary and Joseph were. They were betrothed to be married. And so the idea is, is it's a serious engagement that will not be called off. Meanwhile, here's what happens. In order for a betrothal to be made, there has to be an offer. The offer has to be accepted. And upon acceptance from the bride and her family, the bridegroom's family will make a payment. It's called a dowry. And upon that dowry being paid, there's a handful of things that will happen during the betrothal period, which typically would last for, say, a year. One, the bridegroom's going to go away, and they're going to begin adding on to the father's house. Now, the father would have a house, and it would oftentimes be a living quarters, and then what they would do is they would add little houses around it. And so the patriarch of the family, the great-grandpa or the grandpa would have a house. His son, which would be the father of the bride, uh, bridegroom, would have a house. And now the bridegroom's prepared. And if you have enough kids, you could have multiple houses added onto this one structure, this family living room of sorts. And so here's what happens. This, this dowry's paid, it's accepted. The bridegroom goes away and he's preparing to add on to his father's house. As he's preparing to add on to his father's house, he works and he works. Meanwhile, the bride over here has a hope chest. She has a beautiful dress that's being made. It's white and pure, and it symbolizes the beauty of what she's doing. Meanwhile, mom and dad are saying, no, 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 you're not going to the out of the house. You're not going with all your friends to this little party. You're not going to this little wedding feast. Why? Because they're protecting her, and they're making sure that she is pure, undefiled. She's going to be dressed fine linen, white and clean, and she is awaiting for the bridegroom to come. Now, meanwhile, the bridegroom's over here working, he's preparing the house, and once he gets the house prepared, he goes and he gets all of the young men in his area, and they light their lamps, and usually around midnight, they'll go, and they're going to go over the hills to this other little community where the bridegroom is anxiously awaiting, and meanwhile, they hear the celebration, the chanting in the streets, and what do they do? Oh, my goodness, the wedding feast is about to come. And so what does she do? She goes and she gets her white dress on and she begins to get all the maidens and they get excited and he comes and he takes her and then he's going to usher her back all the way to her father's house in which this wedding feast started at her place and will end the father's house and it'll be a week-long time where there's a consummation. And that consummation would be an acceptance of this relationship. It's moved from a betrothal and a payment to now a full-fledged acceptance. Catching that? 
Here's what that is. It is our relationship to the God of heaven and earth. He sent his son Jesus, who willingly laid his life down and made an offer through his spirit. The spirit reaches out and he draws men unto himself. Upon your acceptance to follow and trust Jesus, there is a payment that has been made, purchased. You have been bought with a price. You are not your own. A payment has been made. His blood sacrifice applied. And what does he do? He goes, now, because you are mine, I'm going to go. John 14. He goes, I'm going to prepare a place for you. For where my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. Because then you know that if, if you're mine, I'm going to come back and receive you unto myself because where I am, there you may also be. And the idea is the bridegroom, he goes and he's adding on to the Father's house now. God is preparing a heavenly dwelling place for those who love him. Meanwhile, what do we do? We have a dowry accepted. Jesus purchased us with his blood. And what does he encourage us to do? He says, now I want you to live in purity. I want you to be dressed fine, linen, white, and clean. Matter of fact, look at verse 8. And it was granted her, meaning the church, the, the bride of Christ, to dress herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Do you see this? The idea is this, is that Jesus goes, I'm going away and I'm going to come back and I'm going to I'm going to receive you unto myself. Who is he receiving? He's receiving the saints, those who love God and live for God. Now, I'll tell you, one of the confusing things, and I've heard this more times than I can count, is, is about Stone Point. It's about our membership process. It's about our commitment. It's about why we ask so much of people. I can't join there. They want too much of me. Uh, I can't join there because it, it's, it's a little crazy. I don't really like the membership process. Here's the deal. The reason that we have such high standards here is because I read my Bible, and I can't see of a church that's watered down. I can't see of a church where it's not committed. Why? Because when Jesus comes back, he's expecting to receive a bride. And it's not a bride who's naked. It's a bride who's dressed fine and linen, white and clean. Now, I'll tell you, I understand that there's lots of different thought processes about in membership and what, what it should be in a covenant and paper and all that. And I'm not trying to get into an argument as much as I am. I want you to understand what the church is and the church is not. The church is not a civic organization. It's not a country club. It's not something you're a part of. It's not a membership due that you pay and you sign into. The church is the bride of Christ, is the people of God. He paid for you with his blood as a ransom for your life. And you've got to ask yourself, when he comes back, Back, what is he going to receive? Is he going to receive a, a bride that's not dressed that you go into heaven naked? Is he, going to, is he going to get a bride that claimed to love him but wasn't faithful to him during that waiting period? Listen, it would not please a Jewish boy to go to this little maiden girl and for her to be undefiled and her be going about with other men being stained. That wouldn't be pleasing to the, the family that paid a dowry for her. Same. Jesus goes, hey, what would it look like if you were unstained and undefiled in this world? Bring back Babylon. In a world where there are so many different ideas and ideologies, what would it look like if you just set your eyes upon me, the author and perfecter of my faith, the Lord Jesus? What would it look like if you just followed me? That's what Jesus is talking about. That's the idea here. And so he's saying, would you dress yourself fine linen white and clean do y'all understand that that's what he's waiting for that's why stone point says hey this is what it looks like it's because a good shepherd knows his sheep and we encourage him the sheep what to follow jesus the great shepherd the one who loves what is a sheep a sheep is an innocent pure white hopefully blameless 
that's willing to listen to the voice of the shepherd and follow him. That's the same. It's the bride of Christ. And so here it is. Once he comes and receives the bride, there's going to be a, a brief celebration. There's going to be a consummation of sorts. And, and there is a debate. Is, I think that the church will obviously be there. That's those who have received the mystery of the gospel made known. Uh, there is debate. Could, could Old Testament saints be there? Yes, possibly. Maybe so. Um, could, there, could there be... Um, other martyrs that have died in the tribulation be there? Yes. The deal is this. There will be a celebration of those who Christ has redeemed and ultimately those who have been purchased by God and their faith has, has followed them into this time. And this is a brief culmination in a time where Cinderella meets her Prince Charming right before Jesus comes back. So the idea, as C.H. Spurgeon says this, the church and those saints are almost like Cinderella. We are in a sense waiting in the ashes, waiting for us to be redeemed, plucked out. We are mistreated by the stepmother in a sense. Isn't that what Jesus says? Hey, if you love the world, then great, you'll gain it. But if, if you love me, the world will hate you as they have hated me. You, you will have trials of many kinds. The idea is that you and, us and I are since Cinderella waiting on our Prince Charming. And our Prince Charming is going to come and receive us unto himself. And we will eat and we will dine with him prior to him coming back and judging the world in verse really 11. You got me? So verse 10 says this, And I fell down to the feet to worship him, but he said, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of your prophecy. And so the deal is this. There's going to be some that are married. Uh, verse 9, they're invited to the marriage of the Lamb. John sees this. He beholds that. It's an incredible thing. And then he sees this angel. In verse 10, he drops down to his knees to begin to worship him. The angel goes, Hey, get up. Get up, dude. But can you imagine John seeing all of this transpire? And so John, a couple of different times, he drops down his knees and the angel goes, hey, get up, dust yourself up. I am not the one to be worthy of worship. And so here it is, he does that. And then verse 11, look what he does. He goes, then I saw heaven open. And behold, there was a white horse. And so this is the second time that we saw a white horse. We saw another white horse in Revelation chapter six. And when we saw that, there was one riding on it, but he had a bow and he had no arrows. That was actually the idea of Satan and the, the rule to come. He has a different weapon. Jesus is coming on a white horse, and look, his name is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. And so I want you to realize the very last days, he's going to gather some people, and then he's going to come. And it says his eyes are like a flame of fire, which the idea is that he could discern all of mankind, that he's able to judge even to the very ideas of the joint and the marrow. Jesus sees it all. You can't hide from him, and so his eyes are like fire, and on his head are many diadems. And, and there's a couple of different words there. Diadems is the idea of crowns. It's the same word that you would get uh, for a crown. But crown in the, uh, in the New Testament, oftentimes as a church, as people, the bride of Christ, we are to run our race, ultimately to gather a crown. And the crown is Stephanos. It's a crown in which you get after a race. It's like the Greek games. It's one that will ultimately be put on your head. This one, diadems, is the crown of, of rulers and kings. And it says and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And so there's a name that's written that no one knows. Some would speculate. Maybe it's Yahweh. You remember what God said to Moses? Moses goes, hey, I'm going to go to Pharaoh and I'm going to talk to him. Who do I say that, that you are? And God says, I am who I am. The idea is that you can't, you can't define him, you can't describe him, you can't understand him. And so there's this name that no one knows, nor can we comprehend. Verse 13, it says that when he comes, he's got a, a robe on that's been dipped in blood. 
and the name by which he is called the word of God. Verse 14, it says, The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword, which, which he used to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh were written the name, King of kings and Lord of lords. So the idea is that when Jesus comes, there's going to be a multitude of people following him. And, the, and it says they're, they're dressed fine linen, white, and clean. Well, who's dressed fine linen, white, and clean? The saints. And so it's as if we're coming and you go, well, so you're, we're going to fight in this war. And the answer is no, you're not going to have to raise a fingertip. Matter of fact, Jesus will not raise a fingertip. It says, well, he's got a sword. What's he going to do? He's going to rule them with a rod of iron. I mean, what's he going to do? He's going to crush the winepress of fury through the wrath of God. Jesus is merely going to speak and all the nations of the earth that are left after a seven-year tribulation that have not been killed or have not been saved by God are going to die in one moment. Matter of fact, if you look at verse 17... It even says that there was an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called all the birds to fly directly overhead and said, Come and gather for the great supper of God. Meaning, all the birds, all the ravens, all the vultures of the earth, in a sense, were called to that moment. And God says, I'm about to destroy them and you're about to eat well. And so here come the vultures. And you can imagine flying overhead and Jesus is about to judge. And when he judged, he's going to do so with a word. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus created everything that you see and know. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He did so through his son. And you know, what his, you know what his son did? He spoke. And when he spoke, the heavens and the earth were created. Amen? You go, well, I don't know about that. Okay, you remember there was a guy named Lazarus with a friend of Jesus who died, and Jesus wasn't showing up on the same time scale that Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, thought that he should. So Jesus shows up late, Lazarus in a grave, and then Jesus walks over there and he goes, Hey, Lazarus, come forth. See, Jesus didn't go and he didn't take a secret balm and rub it on Lazarus. You know what he did? He just spoke and he was recreated. He was dead and now he's alive again. See, Jesus speaks and things happen. He speaks and the world's created. He speaks and a dead man comes alive. He speaks and you and I have salvation or made the mystery, the bride of Christ. It's literally a spoken word. And so when he comes, he will not raise a sword. The sword is the only offensive weapon we have, Ephesians 6. It is the word of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, John 1. Jesus is the word. He has spoken the word. Men come to life because of Jesus and here men are judged because of Jesus. And so he speaks and all the men on the planet, because he gave you breath, he takes their breath. And the vulture of the earth come and eat. What do they eat? They eat flesh, carnality. You know our problem in following Jesus right now is your flesh, the carnal things of your eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of our life. It's the things that we see and we desire with our eyes. And so they're going to come, the vultures come, and they gather for the great supper of God. And what do they do? They eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the riders, the flesh of all men. And they eat both free and slave, both small and great. No one is not eaten except for those that Jesus saves and comes to himself. And you go, well, who, are, who is he saving in this time? Well, it appears that there are going to be some that are in tribulation that are going to be saved. And Revelation 12 says that's going to be the nation of Israel. He's going to protect them. He's going to raise them up like wings, like eagles, and he's going to protect them for a time. And there's probably going to be a handful of Gentiles that escape during the tribulation as well. And what are they going to do? They're going to see Jesus at the end, and they're going to go, thank you that I didn't drop to the ground. Why? Because Jesus 
love them and care for them. He's going to usher them in. Verse 19, it says, I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him. So the idea is that when they see Jesus coming, the Antichrist gathers everybody that's still there. And he goes, hey, let's go. We're going to make a war and we're going to do something. And in verse 20, it says, and the beast was captured and with it was the false prophet who was the presence that had done the signs by which deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped him. And those two were thrown in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So the battle of Armageddon that has been ensuing for several years, they all come and Antichrist says, listen, this God is not worthy of our worship. I don't care if he's riding a white horse or not. Y'all come and you follow me and we're going to go after God. And in the spoken word, God takes Antichrist and he takes the false prophet and he casts him in the lake of fire and then he destroys men who have put their heart against them. And in a sense, the battle of Armageddon is the laughter of God against man and their arrogance. And so God speaks and they fall. Verse 21, it says, The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And the birds eat, and they get full. Y'all got that? So let me explain this real quickly, okay, in a way that all of us can understand. There are four suppers in your Bible. Four. There's the supper of salvation. There's the Lord's Supper in which we who have the Lord's salvation celebrate, right? Jesus says, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the cup, my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Only people who accepted the salvation of God's supper do that. And so those are two suppers. You've got supper of salvation, which God draws you, pays for you, brings you in. You remind yourself of that through the Lord's Supper. Then guess what? There is the wedding feast. We just talked about it. It's the gathering of God's people. And he, you eat and you dine with him right before he ushers in his, his millennial kingdom in which you and I will rule and reign with him. And those who other, others would rule and reign with him, that's the idea. And you go, well, what's the last supper? The last one is called the supper of the great God. And that's where you have this. People who, they die and their flesh is eaten by the birds of the air. And so here's what you need to understand. You got me? Everybody gets to attend at least one of the four suppers. If you attend the first supper through salvation, you're invited to enjoy the Lord's Supper and you will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you reject God's supper of salvation, guess what? You'll only be at the last supper, which is the supper of the great God. Boiling it down, some will eat with Jesus and others will be eaten. Do you understand? You either eat and enjoy the, Jesus or you'll be eaten because of Jesus. That's salvation. It's pretty clear, right? Chapter 20. Let's roll. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain and he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent who's the devil and the Satan. He bound him for a thousand years. So he took Antichrist and the false prophet and he threw him in the lake of fire and he goes, hey Satan, while we're at it, why don't we go ahead and just bind you as well? And so he binds all of them. Verse three says he throws them in the pit. He seals it that they may no, no longer deceive the nations until a thousand years were ended. And after that, they may be released for a little while. So for a thousand years, you're going to have Jesus come back on the right horse. He's going to hop off his horse. He's going to go to the temple and he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years on an earth as we know it. 
And as he rules and he reigns, he's also going to lock up Satan, Antichrist, the beast, the prophet, and all the adversaries, all demonic forces. He's going to lock them up. And so what you're going to have is a thousand years of peace on earth with a righteous ruler. You got me? There will, no be, there will not be corruption at the top. There's going to be a righteous king and everybody will follow him and you'll rule and you'll reign. And that means your kids will play and they will not know sin. When I say your kids, I don't mean you, but I'm talking about kids in that time because it could happen that we're, in a sense, raptured and, and caught up to glory, but it could happen, too, that if in the millennial reign, there are going to be some that are going to walk into the millennial reign and they will have their lives and mortal bodies, right? And so they could have children, and that, those children will, in a sense, grow up and they will not know of sin. They will literally be able to feed an alligator, and that alligator will not snatch his arm off. It's just going to be a world in which you think, oh, this is peace on earth. It almost seems too good to be true. And it will be that. It'll be a thousand years in which the church and the saints of God, Old Testament saints, are, are with God. And in a sense, are enjoying the faith. And so at the rapture of the church, we get glorified bodies. And when we have glorified bodies, we're prepared for the marriage of the Lamb. At the marriage of the Lamb, if there's Old Testament saints that will be there, then guess what? They don't have glorified bodies until... At this point in the tribulation, they'll get glorified bodies, and that means that they'll be able to eat and drink. Right now, no one has a glorified body in heaven. It's literally spirits clothed in white, fine linen, white and clean, robes. Got me? But we'll get glorified bodies. Verse 4 says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who had the authority to judge that was committed, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Because of the testimony of Jesus, the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image or received its mark on their foreheads, they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So those who make it into the tribulation, or after the tribulation, into the thousand year reign, it'll be the church, it'll be Old Testament saints, it'll be everybody that knows Christ. Got me? And when you're there, you need to know there are going to be some that are going to have they're going to have ruling, ruling powers and they're going to reign with Christ. And you go, what do you mean? I'm going to reign with Christ. Well, apparently from the scriptures, those who have been martyred for God's purposes, those who are, have been dressed fine and white and clean, aren't going in naked, so to say, because you haven't done anything for God, you're going to have a place. And you're going to rule and reign with him. And for a thousand years, you're going to have some sort of authority in that thousand year period. Verse 5 says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. You go, okay, hold on, wait a second. The first resurrection, you mean there's going to be another resurrection? And the answer is yes. So the question is, is what's the first resurrection? The first resurrection is those who, after Jesus raptures the church, he's going to go and he's going to get the dead, Old Testament saints those that have gone before us that aren't a part of the rapture church, he's going to call them forth and they're going to be with Christ. But you go, well, what about the, the other ones that, that they, they don't get called to life because the rest of them don't come forth? Well, God's not going to call anybody to rule and reign with him for a thousand years that did not know him. So that means if you die apart from God, your body is not going to be resurrected at the first resurrection. He'll wait until after a thousand-year reign, and then he'll call all of them forth, and then he'll judge. At the end of the thousand-year reign, that's when you truly have the judgment of the wheat and the chaff, the sheep and the goats, who will be with God in the new heaven and the new earth forever and ever and ever. That's when you have that. You're like, I am super confused. Trust me, I'll clear it up for you in just a second. Verse 6, 
Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So here's the deal. Let's just say that all of us in this room, we died today. Got me? Are you prepared? Let's just say you die today and you go, yes, I'm prepared. Jesus bought me the price. He's, I'm not my own. He saved me. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. He's going to call you to glory. Got me? And you're going to go. Your body's going to stay here and your spirit's going to go and be with Christ. Got that? Everybody's like, yes, shake your head. Yes, in Edgewood too. Yes, got that. Awesome. Now let's say that you didn't die today, but Jesus came back this afternoon. He's going to take you with you. And guess what? Your body's going to go. Gone. Your clothes... All going to say here, your earrings going to drop. Any of that extra stuff you got, you know, those surgeries, probably going to stay here. You got me? <laughs> Just saying. You've got a glorified body. So at the return of Christ, there's a couple things happen. Those whose spirits are there are going to get glorified bodies. And then those who he raptures are having glorified bodies. When he enters into the tribulation, he's going to get Old Testament saints and give them glorified bodies. And everybody enters into a thousand-year period. And the only people that enter that are people who know Christ and have glorified bodies as well. Catch this. Hang on with me. Those who are in the tribulation that don't die, and they go into the tribulation as well. They have mortal bodies, and they can what? Procreate. They can have children. And they're going to have children. And if you can imagine, since our country started and in its inception over 200 years ago, there's been about 10 generations. Can you imagine about 40 or 50 generations in a thousand-year period? And so here it is. They're, they're rolling and reigning. There's no sin. There is no, what, death. And they just live and live and live and live. And it says, the blessed is the one who shares in the first resurrection, which would be the church, those who were dead and came to life. But then there are some that didn't know Christ and there's going to be a second resurrection. So let me sum it up for you. Ready? Pay very, very close attention. If you are born once, you die twice. Huh? Okay. If you're born once, you die twice. If you're born of your natural flesh, your mom, you die a physical death and you'll die an eternal one. But if you're born twice, you only die once. So if you're born of natural flesh from your mom and daddy, and you're born again, John 3, because you meet Jesus, you only die one time. And you're resurrected and you're with Jesus. But if you die apart from Jesus, you die a spiritual death, and at the end of a thousand-year millennial reign, he'll call you forth and you'll die again, and he'll cast you in the lake of fire. Do you understand? You either eat with Jesus or you're what? Eaten. It's pretty simple when you boil it all down. Verse 7, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, together from battle. Their number is like the stand of the sea. And we're going to... We're going, to, we're going to close basically right here. Verse 9 says, They marched up over the broad plain of the earth. They surrounded the camp of the saints and bluff city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And So you go, okay, what? And, and it says, verse 10, The devil had deceived them that was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, the beast, the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
So you're telling me, hold on, you're telling me that at the end of the thousand years, there's been peace on earth, Jesus ruled and reigned. You're telling me that Satan's going to be released, he's been banned, he's been chained and bound for a thousand years, he's going to be released for just a little while. And the answer is yes. And you go, well, who's going to be deceived? Well, here's who's not going to be deceived. People who have already trusted in Jesus, there is no condemnation for those in Christ, Romans 8.1. Those who have glorified bodies that got into this time, you won't be deceived. So who could be deceived? You remember the people who survived the tribulation and they had kids and they had kids and they had kids. You've seen Jesus rule and you reign. And you go, well, how in the world could they be deceived? You've got a perfect king. I mean, you, you, you've got no sin. You've got nothing. Well, how in the world was Adam and Eve deceived? They ruled and they reigned with Christ or the vice region of God. They enjoyed everything. And guess what? The old serpent of old, he showed up, right? And he lied and he was crafty and cunning. And he's going to do it one more time. And you go, well, who in the world would believe in him? Well, only a fool. But there will be some. And you go, well, how? How is that even possible? And let me explain it like this, and we're going to close. After you have a thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus on his throne and perfect environment, it'll take man and any of his devices. Because what have we said? We've said, well, you know what? The reason I am that I am is because I didn't have a daddy. The reason I am the way I am is because I came from the Bronx in the neighborhood that was really rough. Or I came out of South Dallas. Or if you'd have known, I came out of Duncanville. Or I came out of Terrell and it's really tough. Okay, yeah. We always talk about the things that we came from. And this is why we are the way we are. But when you get to the end of the thousand years, here's what you're going to know is man will rebel against God his first opportunity. And this is what you need to understand. The reason man will, reba- uh, will rebel against him is because it's a power dem- powerful demonstration that our problem is not in our environment. Our problem is in us. It is a heart that does not know God and can easily be led astray. And so who will be led astray? It will be those who they want to usurp God's authority at the very end of a thousand year reign, even though they saw a perfect demonstration of a rule and reign of a perfect Savior. And so they'll be led away, and when they're led away, guess what? They're going to be cast in the lake of fire, and so will Satan and his adversaries and all the enemies of God, and they'll be, they'll be cast away forever and ever and ever and ever. And then you'll have a new heaven and a new earth come to fruition. But before you have a new heaven and a new earth, guess what? Everybody has to stand before God. And we'll talk about that next week. And then we're going to dive in, not only standing before God, but ushering into a new heaven and a new earth. When you, take, when you think new heaven and new earth, you know what you think of? You think streets of gold, you think crystal sea. Listen, my friends, that's to come. It's not a realization yet. It's to come. And it'll be after a thousand years. Now, uh, you'll have to watch this over and over again. And I praise God for that. And so... Uh, May you be blessed. Let me pray for us. And then we're going we're gonna to dismiss. God, we love you and we thank you that there is going to be a day that we rule and reign with you. We will either eat with you or we will be eaten. And God, it comes down to this. If we are born once, we die twice. But if we're born twice, we only die once. And so God, I pray that we would know that the greatest birth that we will ever have is not from our mommy and daddy. But the greatest one 
is when we meet your son, Jesus, and we're born again. When we have the betrothal offer that we accept it and the dowry is paid, and we now long and we wait anxiously for the bridegroom to come over that eastern hill and to bring us into your kingdom forever and ever and ever. Until then, would you help us to be a demonstration not of our environment, but a demonstration of the sin that you saved us from through the powerful blood of Jesus. May we go forth remembering the broken body and the blood of Christ, and may we be a witness to everyone that we come and see. And may we, we, when we hear people talk about the church and about commitment and about membership and about what it is and what it isn't, I pray that we would be able to anxiously step up right in the gap and say, why would we not be committed to his church? We are the bride. We are to be pure and blameless. We are the hope of the world. We are a witness. We are fine linen, white and clean, and we cannot wait to be with our husband and our true king. And so God, may we be inspired by your spirit to live for you. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, amen.